How does law shape behavior? That is the behavior of humans, obviously, but more broadly, the behavior of communities, organizations, and other entities. Or to back up a bit further, does law ultimately affect behavior? We all likely think it does. But do we know for certain that it's so? And if it does, does it do so in a way that it's intended? Or are its effects sometimes unintended? These questions are at the core of the work of Benjamin Van Roy, Professor of Law and Society at the Faculty of Law, University of Amsterdam, and the director of the Center for Law and Behavior. He has spent most of his academic life examining those questions. In his latest book, The Behavioral Code, The Hidden Ways the Law Makes Us Better or Worse, Benjamin, along with his co-author Adam Fine, an assistant professor in the School of Criminology and Criminal Justice at Arizona State University, provide insight into how law can shape behavior, but also how it cannot. Take one example that Benjamin talks about in the book, seatbelts. Cars had them for years, but usage was incredibly low, approximately 15%. I can confirm that, as I remember growing up with seatbelts that were then called lap belts, which didn't even go across your shoulders. Nobody used them. Then, countries made it mandatory. Use shot up 50%. Then, many countries adopted click-it or ticket ad campaigns and public messaging, crash test dummies, touring car wrecks around schools. Usage went up even higher. Then, manufacturers began to install warning beeps and alarms when seatbelts weren't used. Again, that increased the usage. Now, about 85% or more of drivers of cars put seatbelts on. So, it began to become normal to buckle up. This is what Benjamin and Adam refer to as the, the behavioral code. You can see how some of it is directly relevant to law. Laws creating mandatory use, laws enforcing the non-use, etc., But some is due to other things, education, technology, social norms, and habit formation. In other words, there are extrinsic mechanisms and motivations that can produce changes in behavior, and law is one of the best examples of this. But there are also intrinsic motivations, and it's crucially important to seek out data to justify policy choices made and to assess whether the effects sought are actually achieved, especially when passing extrinsic motivators such as laws. The book is chock full of examples like this. What becomes clear is that laws don't always work as they were intended, and people don't always follow the law. What Benjamin and Adam call the behavioral code is an exploration of the root causes and hidden forces that drive human behavior and how these interact with laws. Dan and I had a wide-ranging and fascinating conversation with Benjamin, We hope you'll enjoy it. Welcome to our podcast. Our guest today is Benjamin Van Roy, whose book is a a book that Danny and I chose for our podcast. Danny and I both read this book. We we really liked it a lot. Uh, It's chock full of information on things that lawyers and legal academics don't often read, and that in in itself is important. And we came 
to this book because both of us are very interested in empirical work in law and think that it's vastly under underdone in the legal field. And so this book, again, it helps to fill out some of those gaps. We we actually lament the lack of empirical work done in law. So this is a, a great addition to that. And hope that projects like this will succeed because again, I think it's very important that we we learn we we use data to help our laws. And that's what this book is really all about. Benjamin, if you'll take all of our questions in that spirit, we are very much in favor of this, but we'll yeah, we'll maybe put you on the hot seat a few times anyway. <laughs> But I'm going to ask you first off to just maybe give us some background on how you got to write the book, whether it, how it connects with some of your earlier work or if it does. Yes. Yeah, just give us a general overview of that. So I started out my academic work working on China, on environmental law in China. And I thought I was going to really study that uh, environmental law enforcement from a legal perspective. Then I soon found out that in China, that didn't make sense. The way the work law was written at the, at the central level, when you go locally, it doesn't work at all like that. So increasingly, I came to be interested in, okay, why does environmental law, in all the ways it's been written, and lawyers say, well, it's really good law, not work locally? That brought me increasingly into the question, okay, why does law achieve an effect or not? And the deeper I went into that, the more I learned, I went on this journey, read other empirical studies did my own studies. And the more I learned, the more I saw that what we know empirically is rather different from what we're teaching and understanding within the legal system. And more than that, I increasingly came to see that this doesn't, this all of this didn't just happen in a vacuum. Laws are made in the political process and very much also shaped by media and public opinion. So I saw that if I wanted to write a book together with Adam, my co-author Adam Fine, that brings this empirical knowledge into law, we shouldn't just address fellow academics in law or even fellow practitioners. We should be in, we should be addressing a popular audience. That's why we decided to write a popular science book because a lot of these issues in the book, for instance, um, um, how do we use capital punishment? How do we deal with guns? Um, what should we do about corporate misconduct? Those are not just uh, not just conversations of specialists, but they're very much conversations that we have in a political and public space. And we saw also in those spaces, there was a big difference between what people assume law will do or how it will work with what we know empirically. Okay, so that, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I can see how it connects with what you'd done earlier, as you said. Just following from that, and I... So I, as I went through the book, I, I made little marginal notes about how many times you you quoted empirical research or used it in various chapters, but you often would say something like the evidence in in this area or the data in this area is ambiguous or it's it it, it might point in in two different directions. And so I'm wondering what what are we to make of this when often your own conclusions are non-conclusions that yep. the data actually didn't get to the the bottom of the problem complex problem. Here's the thing: about. when we decided to write a popular science book, we didn't just want to make it popular. And there's a lot of popular science books. I'm not naming names now that that show you, oh, there's an easy fix, and just follow this study. And we try to really say, okay, what is for a particular area? What is the knowledge base? 
and we looked at the knowledge base. And for some areas, there's a lot of a lot of empirical work. Let's say, for instance, on treatment for cognitive issues that are related to crime or for deterrent effect of, of violent crime. And for those areas, we looked at the available research and we would sometimes find a clear answer. So treatment works against violent crime. It's, it's Everything is in the same direction. For deterrence, we find, well, basically all the research together doesn't show conclusive evidence that it works. And we wanted to have that message there in all of its nuance while still being clear. Then the next question is, okay, what do you do with this? Um, I think, first of all, our book isn't going to show you the answer. It's going to show you what questions to ask. So, for instance, if you are in a public and you're debating punishment or capital punishment or stronger punishment or mass incarceration, you now at least know, look, we don't know for sure that it will help. That is a very different fact than what is debated mostly um, in the public space. For instance, if you look at the, the sort of aftermath of the midterm elections in New York, so if the whole discussion was, well, Democrats got it wrong because they didn't really uh, got get get tough on crime. Well, at least now we can say, well, we're not short of getting tough on crime. They would have reduced crime. So I think it's showing in the reality of where the science is to show what the evidence is and is not. That helps the debate. Um, I think if you're looking at policy roles, yes, it's difficult. A policymaker has to make a decision with incomplete information. What we're hoping is that the policymakers in that policy process or political process at least look broader. Don't just look through a singular lens with a singular perspective, but rather look through through many different mechanisms. So not just punishment that is included, but also other other types of interventions that we talk about in the book, like social norms. So yes, we're actually kind of proud that you bring this up. Uh, that means that we succeeded in also showing, look, we don't just want to show a quick fix because we don't believe it exists in the science. One last thing to say about this, the more I've gone into the science and I've done a lot after the book, the more I see how much we don't know. So my current work is really driving this research agenda to making sure of what we actually do know um, and, and to enlarge that. So empirics alone is not going to solve all the problems. Great. So, so this leads to several uh, thoughts that I had, um, and I have to say that these are kind of the kind of questions that I've been asking myself. So, I've I've written, for example, in the context of COVID about cost benefit analysis, and and initially I thought, well, let's let's just look at the numbers and 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 let them guide us it was written fairly early on but but one thing that i came to see the more i looked into it is that there is first of all very much many times absence of of clear data but also uh the, sometimes the problem is no less than this that politics ideology call it what you want um drives our our understanding of 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 the of the data and so so sometimes it's it's sort of the lack of knowledge and sometimes i also felt that it's these days almost the opposite of this right so so in certain contexts there is so much empirical data out there that each side can construct their their story with and will point to empirical data that supports uh their their story so so yep. isn't this now a problem that that in some respects we we can 
You know, I'll, I'll just give you one example. Since since you have um, Sapolsky uh, blurbing your book, so, yeah. Yeah. so in in, sure. er, in in his book he mentions uh, the and even mentions I think a Dutch uh, scholar that looked oh. into the question of broken windows and yeah. and sure. found that. Um, that there is actually some empirical support for sure. this. And I thought, sure. oh, okay, so broken windows is kind of considered a conservative idea. And so, you know, so so those who want to support this will say, oh, here's here's the study for that. So how, how do well, we deal with that? And this is exactly why we wrote the book the way we wrote it. So yes, one could easily cherry pick through the empirical evidence and construct a story. So I can argue based on the evidence that capital punishment does deter. I can argue that it doesn't deter. I can argue that it creates more crime. So that's cherry picking. What we try to do is to say, okay, let's look at all the evidence and portray a nuanced as possible story without having a false equivalence. So for instance, if one would do a research on, on human whether humans are responsible for climate change, a nuanced story would be that all the science says yes. A false equivalence will be saying, well, some scholars say yes, others say no. But if it's 97% versus three, but even on, even there, so for instance, on the three strikes you're out policy, which we, uh, which we, um, which we describe, we uh, do bring out two studies that do show there is a deterrent effect um, because we found, we, we, we did want to show that. So to go deeper into this, there is definitely problems here where you have, sort of normative moral thinking, political thinking, and empirical thinking. And, and psychologists call this moral coherence. What we think is morally justified, we also think is effective, and the other way around. And we found that in the earlier version of the book, I actually made this a storyline. So I wrote about capital punishment, and then I asked the reader, so were you applauding the studies that didn't find an, a deterrent effect or not? And I said, well, me, myself, I don't personally like, for personal reasons, uh, uh, capital punishment. And I found my reading of the studies that don't find a deterrent effect goes easier. My brain is, is, is clapping like, yay, there's no friction. Whereas stories, that, as studies that, that do find a deterrent effect, I was like, well, how can that be? So, so I was ve A, very aware of it. B, we, we tried to make it also part of the storyline. So, so another part of the storyline was in our book is the story about all politicians love punishment. So we start sort of the political discussion of deterrence with, with Elizabeth Warren, asking for stronger punishment against corporate crime. And we did that on purpose to sort of show, look, if we went into this sort of with a conservative and with Nixon and, 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 and uh, Bush and others calling for, for, for tough on crime war against drugs, that's where we expect it to be. But by showing that that the other side, a more pro more progressive side, may also like punishment, we try to show that we we may all have this uh, this notion towards punishment, and then going into that, we can we can see different sorts of we can see different sorts of empirics. It's interesting that you mentioned the broken window study. We had it originally play a larger part in our book, and it's kind of interesting that a. Um, we can really ask whether that broken window study in the Netherlands done actually says anything that generalizes towards broken windows theory as it's discussed in the US. So the study in Groningen, in the north of the Netherlands, was about um, whether people would litter uh, when a 
a, a, a piece of paper was attached to their bicycle or not, depending on whether they saw graffiti, for instance. How is that generalizable to violent crime in New York? And that's a big issue that we also discuss at the end of the book. I think there's a major general, major general, major generalization crisis that we may have a study A, uh, for instance, something cool in psychology, and then we link it to something B that is just so different. And our book tries to um, deal with that, although, of course, because we do discuss law and behavior broadly, you can also accuse us of that. And sort of my, my current work sort of makes that much more central. How do we deal with these issues of generalization? That's all um, interesting and, and, um, and you know, touches on, on the kind of questions that, that I myself am grappling with. One example that I, I found, so you talk about uh, punishment and you say you don't, it doesn't, there's no clear evidence that it deters. Yeah. Um, but you also say the best thing about, or one of the best means of making sure there, or, or reducing crime is changing people's attitudes so that they kind of treat certain behaviors as wrong or immoral and therefore the ones are sort of beyond the pale. And so couldn't one make this sort of empirical, and I'm sure people may have made it, that, that punishment works. I mean, these are kind of expressive theories of punishment, which are typically understood as sure. deontological terms, but you can give them a consequentialist spin and say, well, the, the way punishment works is not by deterring, but by, by changing certain behaviors as being seen as wrong and therefore... Sure. Um, sure. And, so, yeah. so, so we actually do talk about this in the book. So if you read through the whole book, punishment comes back many times. And the chapter, first of all, punishment is about deterrence because that's how the argument is made about the effectiveness of punishment. So there's, there's three, I think... In law, we talk about three sort of behavioral functions of punishment. So non-behavioral is, is a retribution. That is more to do with making society and victims feel better. But the behavioral ones are deterrence, rehabilitation, incapacitation. We do discuss all of these, but there's others we also bring up. So uh, a punishment in relation to social norms. One of the things we don't really discuss is how punishment sets a norm, which is what you're talking about, and whether punishments... If you have if you have impunity, there's a reason for that. There's no empirics on this. So I'm currently writing an article where we're looking at the 13 different effects of punishment, and we're actually modeling these. So if you look at all the different literatures, punishment has direct and indirect effects, and um, that all in the end comes to shape uh, offending behavior. Some of these are positive, some are negative, and we discuss in the book a little bit about this in the in the conclusion. But I now go much deeper into it. First of all, for each of these, what is the knowledge that we have? For which type of offender, which type of offense, which type of punishment, in which, in which, in which jurisdiction? B, how are these things interacting? And for sure, I mean, we're not making an argument against punishment. So punishment is always part of a mix. If you don't have punishment, you will have you will have impunity. And punishment has many different effects. But punishment interacts with many of the other mechanisms that the book talks about. And if you don't understand these, if you're just going at it through deterrence, and especially deterrence meaning strict punishment and not certain, you're going to get a very negative, you're, you're, you could possibly have a negative effect. And that's what the book warns against. The last question that I'm going to, that I use, I'm going to ask guests is, what is it that you're 
working on now and how does that connect? And you've already, you're going to have to repeat a lot of what you said. because it's Well, there's a lot of other things I can talk it's about. Great. Yeah, it's great that you brought in all of those uh, things. Yeah. So I'm going to change tack a little bit here. I, I wanted, because I partly what I wanted to explain to listeners, the book opens with this uh, uh, thought experiment in a way. I think you say you take, take imagine if you took a pill and the pill uh, uh, reveals all the laws that apply to you and in your you know your daily life and you, you give an example of a person wandering around the city i thought about that as i walked over to danny's house for this podcast imagining all the laws that were appearing before me as i walk along the sidewalk as i see the cars drive as i see building construction sites anyway the, the point being that there's millions <laughs> effectively of laws that most of us don't have a clue are there yeah, and even even those of us who are immersed in the law probably have no idea how many laws uh, apply to us on a daily minute by minute basis and i just thought I, i'm not sure if i even have a question but i wanted to say i love the image of that <laughs> and I, yeah. I but then i did think about you know part of the problem is there are so many laws yeah. and we never seem to reduce those laws and i wonder if you know, <laughs> I wonder if the empirical surveys would ever help us reduce those laws or or all we're going to do is just pile on more laws that hopefully are better, but there'll still be this underlying subsurface of millions of laws. Right? Yeah, so the argument we, I mean, we talk later in the book about whether people actually know the law and the short answer is mostly not. And this is just not just laypersons and basic rights, I mean, basic rights at work, basic rights related to housing, basic family law. It's also specialists, I mean, professionals like doctors, educators, and I'm pretty sure also lawyers. And if you also think just of the cognitive things, so one of the most shocking numbers I found was by the late 1990s, a US corporation had to comply with 300,000 rules backed up by criminal sanctions. So just imagine that you're a decision maker in a corporation. If you have 30 lawyers, talking to you the whole time, which is even not possible. Each of these lawyers would have to be able to communicate 10,000 rules to you. Impossible. And so there's there's the logic of the law, which is where we're all from, which is, okay, there's a new sort of sort of situation. We'll make rules, whether that's in state in, or, in, or, in, or in federal law, but even in contracts or even in internal rules organizations, we're good at making rules. We sort of devise these rules and we feel, wow, we've done it. In the book, we compare that with sort of programming. It also looks a little bit like like basic a, a coding language. You sort of you sort of have definitions. You sort of have uh, the sort of ifs, and then you have the thens, uh, which are the sort of basic incentives. And the problem with that is it grows and grows and grows, and you don't really think about how it is for the user, which is the norm at C. And for them, if they don't even know these rules, how are they going to be able to comply with this? And this is. The, the most ironic thing about all of this, as I was writing all of this, I was in a leadership position in my faculty and I was making just as many rules as anybody else. <laughs> so there are reasons that we make all these rules, even if we know we shouldn't. And I don't see it going anywhere easily. We just did an experiment where we tried to reduce an anti-bribery and corruption policy at a large hardware company from um, 24 pages to one page. And we thought that we might get the same amount of information across with a one page compared to a 24. We also got a control group that didn't get any of the information. Shocking thing was we found that 
There was no difference in the four groups. In other words, none of them were influenced by anything they were reading. They just brought their own norms to answering the questions about anti-bribery and corruption. So that's even a bleaker picture than I think we show in the book. So I, I'm now going to change direction uh, a little bit uh, to something that I'm intrigued by, um, which is sort of a little bit outside the book, uh, which is the reactions to the book, especially from colleagues. And I'm saying this because I told you, I'm I'm quite sympathetic to yep. kind of a quantitative yep. evidence-based approach to to um, to law, cost-benefit analysis and, yep. and, and all yep. that. And I, I don't know in terms of numbers, but but there's definitely um, a perception of uh, that I have that that for many people this approach is borderline evil, right? Because yep. um, where's the justice? Where's the yep. morals? Yep. You turn yep. humans into numbers and so yep. on. Um, and and so for I mean one example that I. I I do know about is from work on on cost benefit analysis yep. um, that that people who, have, who advocated uh, there's a book with a title um, or the subtitle on knowing the price of everything and the value of nothing right so yeah. it's and so I wonder uh, about just how 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 well do you find these ideas being received and and since you have worked or work both in in the US and in the Netherlands I also wonder about different whether there are different reactions uh in the two countries I think there's been a misunderstanding in some of my legal among some of my legal colleagues in the US and the Netherlands there's exactly the sort of misunderstanding that you portray which is that our book makes a claim about justice our book is very explicit about this it says Look, we're just showing you what we empirically know about how rules get to behavior. That doesn't make for a full normative question. Our book is not normative. You first need to find out what is just and right. Then you need to find out how to get it done. So if a law is unjust and you use our book, it, you can make it more effective in its unjustness. We say uh, a better understanding of behavioral effects of law without justice is, is evil indeed. I mean, we, I mean, we say this. At the same time, and this I see a lot of the other end, I mean, there's so many books about injustice in the US, for instance. And that doesn't mean that you then know how to solve it. That doesn't mean, so for instance, people would, would also say about this book, it's very instrumental. It uses law to deal with a problem, which we, which is our view. It's very instrumental. I'm actually a self-avowed instrumentalist. But then people are like, well, what about, what about rights protection? And I say, look, okay, let's say you have, uh, you're dealing with discrimination and, and rights. I still have an instrumental view of that. If you want the rights to be better protected, you have to understand how that's done. So we're not making normative, I mean, we're different from cost-benefit analysis in law and economics. We're not saying that our book should be the core thing you weigh in costs and benefits or in justice. There's many things you can weigh. All we're saying is once you've come up weighing that, then it's time to figure out A, how to get it done, and B, in weighing the costs and benefits, you can may maybe get a better idea of what these are if you understand the sort of the sort of predictive behavioral effects and how to get there. And what we're seeing now is so in Europe they talk a lot about fact value distinction. So often lawyers in Europe, I don't know in the US, I've not, not heard their term that they say, look, empiricists shouldn't be sitting on the chairs of judges. So the, the value, the normative decision should be left in the law and the empiric should be left out of that. And I sort of say the opposite. How can you talk about values if you don't know the facts? 
Mm-hmm. So for me, they're they're they are linked to each other, and we just do one part of them. I think the problem has been in the past, especially with law and economics, they've tried to completely Pac-Man um, the full sort of justice decisions. We don't do that at all. Our idea of behavioral jurisprudence is really let's add sort of the behavioral facts of law as a layer we must understand in any of these debates, whether it's about uh, injustice, whether it's about cost-benefit analysis, whether it's about sort of having more, having more effectiveness. In all these things, you always have behavioral assumptions. And we're trying to get to sort of the questions one can ask to deal with these behavioral assumptions. We don't have the answers. We more have the questions. Your book is full of questions, as you said earlier. <laughs> yes. Um, but picking up on that idea of instrumentalism, um, I was, again, as I was reading it, I was thinking of examples of laws or policies that have changed behavior yep. quite quite significantly with with very little uh, pushback or cost. And, and I'm not sure, I don't think you mentioned these, but I'm wondering if you could comment and uh, you'll, you'll get, I'll get to my question in a minute, but you know, things like water fluoridation. I don't know if they have that in in the Netherlands, but we do in Canada. Or iodized salt, both of which have you know yeah. really helped make incredible health benefits to those. Yes. Mandatory vaccinations for children. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, and then I was thinking. I remember my tort law professor saying, you know, why don't cars have speed regulators so you can't go over the speed limit exactly um so things like that i just wondered and so i my question to you is uh, you've already kind of agreed that those are good ways to change behavior that are pretty simple but basically oh okay oh wait okay no go ahead go ahead i mean the problem with all these things is we're not making a claim that they're good we're we're making only claims what we know about effectiveness whether it's good is a broader definite is a broader Mm -hmm. debate so yes we have these examples in the book as well positive changes through law. For instance, the seatbelt example, which I think is still one of the best examples. If you look at the US, there was uh, around early 1980, I mean, since 1973, every car was mandated to have a seatbelt. Then by the early 1980s, about 20% of people were regularly wearing them. Then law came in to change that. All states but New Hampshire mandated seatbelt law. If you look at the numbers, then, then they went up, compliance went up to 50%. So that's just simply making a rule, which is the great thing in a rule-based society. Then they got the uh, the fines, hundred bucks, very low fines, went up again. Then you got the um, the the crash test dummies sort of uh, sort of public announcements, and we got the warning beeps. So all of that together led to now we're at over eighty yeah. percent. Now for most people, it's no longer a a decision. Now if you take away the rules, and that's I think the most successful law. You take away enforcement, you take away the rules. At some point, it becomes so deeply ingrained, it's just there. Yeah. You can't have that on everything. So I think, for instance, with taxation, probably you always need some sort of a stick in the in the background, etc. I mean, so for each rule, first of all, you have to see, to what extent can we actually ingrain it, deepen it, make it a habit? That goes further or or less far, depending on the thing. What you mentioned about um, speeding, we have examples like that also in the book. For instance, uh, on distracted driving, there's a, I mean, every iPhone, and there's a patent by Apple already for this, already has in of itself that it knows when it's in a car. So actually, there could be regulation forcing uh, the phone makers to switch off phone usage 
while the car is driving. Or there's another device that sort of blocks phone usage in the driver's seat. But in the chapter where we talk about this more broadly, we ask the question, why don't we do this? And then we go back to the 1973 debates about seatbelts, because at the time, the highway authority in the US, they not only had the seatbelts installed in the cars, but they also had these, um, these, these ignition locks, or they had uh, mandated that the seatbelt should come automatically, which you see in old cars. Yeah. And it was such an outward, people felt so threatened in their freedom by this, that Congress, US Congress made a federal law banning the highway authority of having, ever making rules like this. So we go into this by saying, okay, this is a broader debate about whether you want to use these sort of direct physical interventions. It is all about freedom. And of course, after that, we talk about guns, which of course is the big debate there. Yeah. But it's fascinating to me that some of these things do work and then others don't. And it's hard to know which ones will and which ones won't or... Well, I think as a rule of thumb, the further, the, the the larger sort of the behavioral change is you want to make, and the more deeply ingrained it is, um, the less visible it is, the the harder it is to, uh, the, the more ingrained it is with, with also personal morals, mm-hmm. the harder it's going to be. And and yes, it's good. I mean, originally in the, in the very early draft, I started off with three examples of success and three of failure of law. And we asked, when does it work and when doesn't it? And in order to really understand the question, you you, you could probably use the whole book. So you could look at every one of those mechanisms that, that plays a role in success or failure. So I want to ask about, about gun control, because I think it's it's an interesting uh, question and or or issue and, and possibly a challenging one. So if I understand, so, so let's say... We got all the data, and I should say, just for the record, I'm I'm all in favor of of, of as much gun control as you want. So I'm sure. not speaking here as a as a someone who, who favors sure. uh, uh, um, letting people carry guns on the street. But sure. um, but let's assume that we give people all the data and we show that um, more guns mean more crime and more yep. uh, gun violence, which yep. I think. From what my understanding of the data, the the evidence does uh, support that. So if we took the sort of the narrow, let's approach to cost benefit analysis, that would end the discussion. But you say, no, I'm not I'm not taking this stance uh, because we have to in a way we need to factor into this, into our our, into our question, into our analysis. freedom and people put value on freedom and therefore yep. they yep. and so and, and this is where i get really troubled or 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 stuck because 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 freedom is is not easily quantifiable to put it sure, um people can always sure give it as yeah. much weight as they want so let's say you you show them that you know you increase uh every addition of 100 guns increase adds 10 10 yep. extra murders per year. Yep. And they'll say, yeah, but freedom. Then you say, oh, actually, you know what? I reworked the, the data. In fact, 100 guns add 20 deaths per year. Yep. They'll say, yes, but freedom. So, so you know, yes. no matter, the, so, so, so this is sort of, in some respects, impervious to, so you say, yes. I'll just lay out the data and people will, will make better decisions. But because no. of this, I worry about... It's different. So first of all, we we don't, again, we're not a normative book. So the only reason we talk about freedom is we want to understand we have this perfectly good physical intervention, like speed bumps, 
or all these other examples that we give, for instance, uh, getting rid of high denomination bills for money laundering, um, having having different glass in bars so you can't knife, be- I mean, you can't glass people. It's many, many, many applications. Yet in some cases we use this, like for instance, terrorism or in traffic. And in others, we don't use them. And the, and the example, the core example there for me is guns and only the U.S., so it's only the U.S. actually that is like this. In all other countries, uh, this is this is different. But why we talked about guns is to sort of show what the counter argument in a political space that's different from cost benefit analysis is not some some let's say okay let's do a pure utilitarian exercise. This is what we see happening in reality. Sort of and and we try to sort of see okay what do people and we try to find the most and and I'm on the side of gun control. I don't even I'm not even for gun control. I'm just for getting rid guns of guns at all. So, yeah, exactly. I yeah. I think gun control again is an American word. <laughs> I don't stand for that. I mean, I, uh, anyway, but that's that's irrelevant. What I stand for because my book is not about my 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 own opinion. What what, what we really try to do is look. We we can show through evidence that there is an effective different way of getting from law to behavior, which is not through changing the motivation of people but the opportunity they have to do harm. Yet sometimes that doesn't work. And we we then look at some of the negative sides to this. So one is victim blaming, which happens with some of these things if you don't have good alarms in your house, et cetera. And the other argument is freedom. And we just laid it out, but we also sort of show the counter argument to that, which is not even cost benefit, which is if you allow as happened in the US, guns to be everywhere, you're having one freedom while sacrificing another. I think there's a direct relation between the amount of guns in the US and the amount of of police um, weaponry and also police violence. I don't think there's many countries in sort of non-war war situations or non-completely upheaval where the police is so is so weaponized. But anyway, our argument is different from yours. Yours is a project of of, of cost benefit and normative. So you weigh the cost and benefits in order to advise on a decision. Ours is to lay out when you're doing cost benefit or when you're making a decision, these are the options to get from the law to the problem. And these are what we know of the effectiveness of the options. And for some, we also discuss some of the counter arguments that have been made, why we don't use them. So then we drop a little bit into the normative, but not because we think that val- that, that freedom should be weighed in in a cost benefit, but rather, if you're doing a cost-benefit, you're always in the end faced up with a political situation. There's no way at all that you're going to get over the freedom arguments that are being made. And there's other arguments that are, that could be made. But this we saw as the only one that seemed sort of valid and rational from some perspective. So I understand what you're saying. I think what we're saying is just not as prescriptive. Mm-hmm. I was... I was thinking as you're talking about the idea that uh well i was thinking of, of vaccinations as another one yeah. and and how the data has shown and we in canada have this i'm sure you have it in the netherlands there's mandatory vaccinations for certain children for yeah. mumps and rubella etc and they're required and all all kids will have them and the data showed that that it's very it's a great thing that that happens but interestingly, and I'm wondering if you comment on this, given that data, but now given the whole fake news 
the whole concerns about COVID vaccinations, that argument about childhood mandatory vaccinations has been reopened here in Canada anyway. And it seems you, you would think that once these things have been implemented, they will stick like the seat belts and like, well, iodized salt. But here's an example of where the data and the and the law seem to work in tandem. But now we're reopening that debate. And I wonder if you could comment on that and how 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 would you deal with that? I don't know if the book actually deals with. So so in the conclusion of the book, we talk about the limits of laying out data to to the public. We talk also about the limits of data themselves, which we we touched on a little bit earlier. But just I mean, simply showing people what works. So, for instance, we wrote an op-ed uh, in the LA Times about the rising homicide rate, and we and we basically outlined okay what works against murder, and we showed well stricter punishment in of itself. So we're not saying that that's not part of the mix is not going to be enough, and if you're going to do it, you need needs to be certain what does really work and where we have strong evidence. One is therapy, which seems so counterintuitive, and second is. Uh, uh, socioeconomic opportunities. For instance, we showed data, I forgot the exact number, but if you have this amount, if you have 10% more graduations, you have this amount fewer homicides. There's good econometric research on this. And it was fascinating in the comments section, you can look it up in the LA Times, the comments section, what happened? So how people responded just to numbers. And, and we also talked about guns, obviously. So there was, um, first of all, there was a very strong racist response talking about these animals don't even want to be educated. And there was very strong racial undertones. Uh, about guns, they just said we were safe in our communities, but they would get us. And what I've seen with these sorts of things is data alone are not what is driving the, the conversation. What is driving the conversation is sometimes the opposite. So to give you another example from a different book that I read, which I really think is good on this one, it's called Strangers in Their Own Land. And it was done by a Berkeley so so sociologist who went to Louisiana to understand why people were voting for the Tea Party, even though they lived in squalid pollution. And they knew it was caused by the local uh, industry that was supported by the Conservative Party there, by, by, by the Republicans. And even though that was costing them economically. And the book argues, and I think that's similar to what you just described on vaccines, Sometimes people hate the solution more than they hate the problem. <laughs> so in that sense, they've been taught to learn that this governmental interventions were so unfair because they privileged poor people and people from a different race that they hate government so much more, and the solution would be more, more government regulation, than they hate the problem, which is pollution. So I think this is just an example of just outlaying data, which in this case was, well, there's pollution, causes health and economic effects. They didn't need, they didn't even need the data, they had it themselves. Yeah. Still, they go against it because there's a different story. And what we say in the end of the book, the only way to counter this is not just data, it's storytelling. So you need good storytelling. You can't just say, and this also goes for cost-benefit analysis. Cost-benefit analysis is great. Next step is do storytelling. And maybe the storytelling doesn't do justice to the data, but people need the story. That's also where I see some of the data that has been so effective, for instance, that every um, execution prevents eight homicides, which later was debunked. That in of itself is a story. You can visualize it, you can see it. 
But if you have a more complex sort of data, you need to do that translation. And I think we're not doing enough of that. And that's what our book tried to do. Okay. There's so much here that, uh, and, but we are kind of uh, yeah, we getting time. towards the end. So I do want to ask about the, the final chapter, um, yeah. which is in some respects a prescriptive in the sense of let's uh, about some suggestions of, of legal education. Yes. And, and I can say that I'm again, very sympathetic to this because I <laughs> teach a course in jurisprudence and I can tell you, I think I have, the weirdest jurisprudence course in the world. There's no HLA Hart and there's no Ronald Dworkin, but there is exactly kind of, I call it actually a problem-solving approach to jurisprudence. Yes. And and one of the things I try to um, convey to my students is, again, relating to what you said, that, that there's this sort of lawyerly uh, tendency to think, here's a problem, let's make a law against it is not necessarily the right one because we have other non-law mechanisms for problem solving. And, and we should always think about those before uh, or, or together with thinking about law. So, so the idea of teaching lawyers uh, more about, about the world they live in is one that I'm, I'm, very sympathetic with, but uh, I do want now to to give you some, you know, depressing information in the sense. So, yeah. so of course, the distinction between law in the books and law in action is is yeah. is I think comes from Roscoe Pound in an article yep. published in 1909. Yeah. Yep. And then there's an an article I'm going to read to you a little tiny excerpt from it from uh, an article published in 1933. Okay. And he says so. It's uh, Herman Oliphant, one of the legal realists. And he says. After Langdell, law students continue to study legal problems without correlating uh, correlating the pertinent data from the other social sciences, without the use of objective methods of study represented by such modern scientific methods as statistics, and without yeah. attempting fieldwork. And he actually even draws a distinction or contrast between law schools and medical schools. And he says medical schools used to teach uh, in the past, before there was a revolution, they used to teach uh, t uh, through the method of tongue gazing and guess. Yep. And then yep. they adopted, the, uh, they changed the, the, their practice to blood tests and scientific diagnosis. Yep. Um, and so this is almost cool. 100 years ago, <laughs> which is in some respects uh, great, but in some respects... So will 100 years from now, people have uh, then, you know, some other version of podcast, maybe through uh, brain brain transmission, in which people will say, why are lawyers still not yeah. doing this? So the interesting thing is, I think the market is changing. And we also write a little bit about this, but not, not fully. So since the book has come out, I've talked with so many people in practice. So first of all, some of the biggest hiring is done in anti-money laundering in banks. So those are law and jobs. You're, it's not it's not enough to know the law. I've seen it also talking with people that are in-house. They need to know how to make the law work. If you look at some of the uh, people in compliance, they're not, they're they're no longer just designing um, a liability management systems, which I think is what they used to do to get a a, a reduced sentence if caught under the sentence under the federal sentencing guidelines in the U.S. No, they're now actually trying. They have behavioral units. Even even more shocking, private law firms. There's one private law firm. They have a behavioral unit. So they actually, I mean, these firms are all about making money. They actually see a market. So the behavioral unit has behavioral scientists, it has data scientists, and it has a behavioral, I mean, a, a data visualist. So I see things are changing. And even more, there are several organizations, a big bank I talked to the other day, their audit 
audit units, they are not just doing sci I mean behavioral science in sort of flat way that I also don't like. They actually use they're actually using complexity science where they're linking up variables. So I think things are changing. I think law schools are slow to respond. Um, at least in my law school, similar to you, I teach a first year compulsory course on law and behavior. Um, where actually from next year onwards, I'm not assigning my book anymore. What I'm doing now is I'm I'm assigning two empirical articles per week, and these are 18-year-olds just out of high school students. And I'm teaching them how to critically read empirical material and how to also read it, not just on content, but also on on, on validity, generalizability, and also and also and also causality. And then we put them into assignments, for instance, sort of sort of contract negotiations or moot court type things where these articles play a role and they learn to apply them in law-like situations. And with that, I'm trying to plant a seed of, okay, you can do a legal analysis, you have those legal glasses on, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna teach you to lift them up a bit and to understand also how to do a human or organizational analysis. And I think that's the future. I think there's a market. So I'm pretty sure in a hundred years, most lawyers will still be doing similar things that I've always done, but at least there'll be a group of them that's gonna be different. Benjamin, can you send us that uh, the course syllabus for that? It sounds it sounds exactly what we need it's in, here. It's in Dutch. I'm so sorry. <laughs> oh, <laughs> it's in Dutch. But I'm I'm thinking. So I I wrote a, a a study guide on how to study empirical articles in Dutch, but I will I will probably translate it into into English because I see. I mean, I really wanted to write something without technical terms, in a very simple way, so that students who have no prior background and also some of my my colleagues can just read this stuff. I mean, they can't, and I even teach them what things they they don't need to read that they don't understand to still be able to understand it. Yeah, we actually just talked about this before. Before that, that it it increasingly needs to be the case that um, that lawyers, even if you don't know how to do such research, just yeah. reading such a study, and because one thing that that I've I've even noticed this in Supreme Court of Canada decisions. I know there's yeah. research that shows this in the U.S. Supreme Court decisions. It's it's that these sort of studies are more and more cited by it, yeah. by lawyers to the courts, yes. and courts yes. rely on them. Yes. And then you say, but if you don't know how to read such an article, you have no way of of evaluating this. You jump to the, and then it's very indeed likely that you will cherry pick the studies that exactly. That I mean, we're, I mean, I mean, another follow up study I'm doing now is we're looking at how the U.S. Supreme Court has dealt with behavioral evidence. So not just social science, but really on the behavioral effects of law, and, and we're focused on capital punishment and deterrent effects. And we're reading now the Gregg and Furman case. So these are the big 1970s a case that first abolished and then brought back capital punishment or nearly abolished. And what we're looking at is, okay, A, they do discuss deterrence in these, in these cases uh, as part of the penological goals test of the Eighth Amendment. Then we're looking at, okay, how do they discuss deterrence as an empirical question or not? And they mostly do empirical. And if they do empirical, do they answer it or just assume it? Or do they use evidence and evidence? If so, what? And are they cherry picking? And we're comparing that with what we reconstructed was the empirical evidence at the time. And our core argument, normative argument in the article will be that if courts come up with, have faced behavioral questions, they need to use systemic review. You can't just rely A, on your own understanding or even on an expert witness, because all of them can cherry pick. And the only way to get around cherry picking is systemic review, which means that you have rules on what to include from the evidence and how to read it. 
So I think that's a really big thing for law. It's not just how to read individual articles, but also how to understand a body of knowledge. Yeah, that is great. I think we are, we're definitely getting to the end of time, Benjamin. Um, and so I, we have a standard question, which as I say, you've kind of answered, but maybe <laughs> it, it's a two-parter, one of which is basically think about where what's going to happen to the the material in your book going forward and what are you yourself doing going forward maybe you can just encapsulate right. summarize what you've already said sure so um i hope the book going forward so so adam and i sort of feel like when the book came out it's like having a child and you need to nurture it and do all kinds of things but now our book has gone off to college so increasingly i feel it needs to speak for itself uh, of course, I love my book. It's my it's, it's my child, but but I, I hope it lands um, broadly. So far, we've largely had conversation with colleagues and people in practice. I think the general public, it's been harder to reach. So that's still a challenge for us. And I, I think that's always a difficult thing. Uh, but I also have to say and this to this to your uh, 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 to your next question. I feel it's very healthy, not just to try and stay in the sort of public intellectual sphere. I'm not comfortable being there too long. I like that I've been there a bit now. But I think for me, the next step is really to go back into my own empirics. And a big project I haven't talked about yet, we have a very large project where we're trying to understand how organizational culture shapes a structural, a structural organizational misconduct. And we're, we're doing a large amount of case studies to understand sort of how do cultures in organizations come to shape, for instance, police misconduct in police departments or fraud in banks, or Me Too cases in the Catholic Church, et cetera. Um, and we're trying to build from that and generalize from that to sort of what are the sort of risks and warning signs that organizations should be aware of um, that may play out in their culture. So that's the ne next big project that we're first doing empirically and maybe at some point may become a book, or maybe not. Well, if it does become a book, we'll have to have you back on. Well, that's going to be a, a long while because this project <laughs> will take a long time. Yes. Uh, well, Benjamin Van Roy, thank you so much for a really fascinating discussion. And uh, yes, we wish you all the best. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.